Good morning, Christ City. Good morning. Happy Sunday. So today's reading is from Psalm 40, verses 9 through 13. I've preached you to the whole congregation. I've kept nothing back. God, you know that. I didn't keep the news of your ways a secret, didn't keep it to myself. I told it all how dependable you are, how thorough. I didn't hold back pieces of love and truth for myself alone. I told it all. I let the congregation know the whole story. So now you, Lord, don't hold back any of your compassion from me. Let your loyal love and faithfulness prote always protect me because countless evils surround me. My wrongdoings have caught up with me. I can't see a thing. There's more of them than hairs on my head. My courage leaves me. Favor me, Lord, and deliver me. Lord, come quickly and help me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for this gathering, for this time together, God. I thank you that you are in this space, Lord. I, I hope, I pray that you prepare us to hear your word um, and to take it in personally. You have a message for each of us individually. That is why you are so incredible. Um, you can take something that we've all heard uh, in a common communal space, and you can help us to apply it to each of our lives personally, God. I pray that we are open to hear your word. I pray for Justin as he comes, that you give him courage, that you give him peace and strength um, as he does your work. In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks, Nicole. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church. We are uh, in the middle of a series called The Whole Story, uh, where we've been learning about and we've been practicing in our small groups um, testimony. We've been sharing our own stories and hearing and receiving the stories of others. And we've been engaging with these stories with reference to God. Uh, the spiritual practice of testimony uh, is about seeing and perceiving the agency and action of God within, around, and all throughout our stories. And so over the last few weeks, we've heard about testimonies of faith. Andrea kicked us off. Uh, and then the importance of community to testimony and the importance of testimonies within communities from Dana. We heard about the who, what, when, where, why, and how of hope from Marissa. And then last week on Kid City Sunday, we were led by our younger saints, and particularly through the sharing of Arkel and Nathan as we explored testimonies of origin. And uh, I know all of the kids are, well, the younger kids are out of here, but, but uh, uh, let's just, I, I just wanted to show our appreciation for what happened last week. Um, and so if you, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's celebrate that. Let's give thanks to God for that. Uh, so we'll give thanks to God for that. We also want to give thanks to Nikki for that. So um, as you see her, or if you have feedback on that, please share that with her either in person or over email. I'm sure she would really appreciate that. Uh, this week I have the, the great privilege and pleasure of talking about failure. <laughs> Testimonies of failure. Stories of falling. Which is super uh, wonderful. Uh, Failure could encompass any number of things, right? So uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and share with them your biggest failure. <laughs> I, no, I am kidding. Uh, some of you were like, is he kidding? Uh, but if I were to ask you in what ways have you failed, what would come to mind? It might be, it might be a small failure. It might be a big one. It could be failing to do your chores. It could be an academic failure getting an answer wrong or failing a class. It could be a professional failure, anywhere from a mistake in an email to professional misconduct. It could be relational failure. It could be forgetting your significant other's birthday or betraying someone else's trust. It could be a communication failure, as small as forgetting to ask someone to pick up some groceries or as 
terrible and awful as not communicating about an abusive situation. It could be something that only you know about. It could be something the world knows about. It could be something in between. Failure covers a whole range of things, and depending on what the failure is, it could be almost insignificant to you or to others, or it could be a deep, deep wound to you or to others. There are also a lot of ways we could talk about failure. We could talk about the failure of others, or to put it another way, when others sin against us, in which case we would talk about failure of friends or loved ones or someone in authority over us. We would talk about dealing with betrayal, hurt, loss, grief. If we were talking about the failure of others, we'd talk about forgiveness and what that looks like. There's been a lot in the news and online this week about forgiveness, what it is and what it isn't. We talk about reconciliation and about how and when to release a relationship. Or we could take the angle of looking at uh, the failure of systems and structures, which if we think about it is just calcified sin. It's the built-up sins of lots and lots of people over lots and lots of time. And in this case, we talk about the need to address the big picture, to learn from history, to be aware of context and our place in the larger story. We talk about the power of prophetic activism and organizing because contrary to the prevailing myth of American culture, not everything can be addressed or dealt with on an individual basis. And sometimes the collected sins of lots and lots of people over lots and lots of time need to be addressed, confronted, and dismantled by lots and lots of people over lots and lots of time taking positive, redemptive, spirit-inspired action. Each of those could be sermons and sermon series in and of themselves. But even if I, I talked about them, the topic of failure is so broad and far-reaching that I would still undoubtedly miss some aspects and angles. I would fail to cover the whole story. Thank you. In fact, I'll probably still do that today. I probably won't be able to cover everything, but I, I, I'm going to cover what I can. I'm going to trust that God will make up the deficit. Today, though, I want to focus on our own failures, the ways that we fail and fall short, and specifically how to handle them. But first, let me explain why I want to look at our own failures rather than others' failures. The first reason is that's where the psalm leads us. Okay, Psalm 40 has been our anchoring psalm for this series, and particularly verses 9 and 10, where the psalmist sings of sharing the whole story with the congregation. What follows after, though, is this in verse 12. My wrongdoings have caught up with me. I can't see a thing. There's more of them than hairs on my head. My courage leaves me. The psalmist is crying out to God, acknowledging their own wrongdoing. See, even the slightest bit of self-awareness ought to urge us to some caution in our judgment of others because if we're not careful, we can spend so much time pointing out the specks in others' eyes that we might miss the planks in our own, to quote a well-known rabbi. That's Jesus. <laughs> Just to be clear. Now, this is not to say that we don't critique or correct things outside of ourselves, nor even that we have to wait until we have it all figured out before we do so, because we'd never get there. But we should probably be a lot more careful than we are in our judgments and our pronouncements of those judgments. Second, in case you're wondering, you know, well, why talk about failure instead of resilience or perseverance or grit or overcoming failure? I mean, failure is such a downer, right? Where's the hope? Here's, here's another reason why it's important to talk about failure, because failure is part of our reality. How many people do you know who experience life as a series of wins going from glory to glory, from mountaintop to mountaintop? 
Facing our failures is important if we are to live in reality and not some make-believe world. Related to that fact is, um, as Father Richard Rohr says, you cannot heal what you do not first acknowledge. You cannot heal what you do not first acknowledge. A lack of awareness or a refusal to acknowledge our failures would be like trying to act as if you, know, you don't have a broken ankle or an addiction. And again, maybe someone else is coming to mind right now. Someone who refused to acknowledge their failure, who uh, made the same mistakes, who kept hurting people, who continued in oblivious destructiveness. I'm sure that we can all think of somebody else in our lives, somebody that we know uh, who falls into that category. But again, again, what if it's you? What if it's you? What if it's you who needs to address your anger or your impatience or your blind spots? or your inability to curb your appetites, or the ways that you're hurting people, even unintentionally? What if it's you? Fourth, and maybe most importantly, we're talking about our own failures because Christian mystics would say that after a certain point in life, success has very little to teach us. That in fact, the most valuable thing in your life is your failures. The most valuable thing in your life is your failures. When the monk Thomas Merton was asked for advice, he said, Be anything you like. Be madmen, drunks, or bastards of every shape and form, but at all costs avoid one thing, success. At all costs avoid success. That, that lands a particular way here in our city, doesn't it? D.C. is built on success, or at least, and maybe more truthfully, on the perception of success. The most common question that's asked when we meet someone new is what? What do you do? As if knowing what job a person holds will tell us how to treat them. And I know we don't do that intentionally. I know we don't do it consciously, but it still happens, right? Success can deceive us into thinking that we've got it figured out. Or worse, that we alone are the architects of that success. In Deuteronomy 8, the people of Israel, they were finally about to enter the promised land and they received this warning. When you eat and get full and build nice houses and settle down and when your herds and your flocks are growing large, your silver and gold are multiplying and everything you have is thriving, don't become arrogant, forgetting the Lord your God. Don't think to yourself, my own strength and abilities have produced all this prosperity for me. Remember the Lord your God. Now, I'm not saying we should aim for failure, you know, that we should stop trying to do our best, that we should give up, and nor am I saying that success per se is bad. In fact, I think we oversimplify things when we treat success as the opposite of failure, but we may have more to learn from our failures than our successes. It's not to say it's easy, though, right? We don't like experiencing, we don't like learning from, we don't like talking about our failures, and so... Often in our day and age, failure is simply treated, when we do talk about it, it's treated as a stepping stone to success. We don't like sitting with failure because it's hard to sit with failure, especially when it's our own. Author and Pastor J.R. Briggs explains why failure is so hard to process. He argues that when we fail, we think that that failure is going to lead people to reject us and that rejection elicits shame in us. Failure, rejection, and shame. And shame, as researcher Brene Brown would describe it, is a judgment about ourselves that goes not to what we have done, but to who we are. 
Shame leads us to say, not I failed, but I am a failure. One is an identity, one is an act. Shame isolates us from others and drives us either to present a version of ourselves that we think might be more amenable or more impressive to others, a false self, or not to share at all, which further isolates us, further cuts us off from community, from wholeness. Failure, rejection, shame. That's why failure is so hard to talk about. I think we can, have t uh, we can tend to have two reactions to our failures. We can tend to be flippant about them or we can be fatalistic about them. Be flippant about them, we can be fatalistic about them. In other words, we can dis dismiss or deny them or we can dwell on them. We treat our failures as nothing or we treat them as everything, as fleeting or as final. Neither extreme is the right response. Instead, I believe we are called to hold them before the Lord, to learn from them so that we might grow from them, and then perhaps to also share them so that others might grow from them. But I'm going to focus today on how we handle, on how we handle our failures, because if we can't do that, well, then any sharing about them may be at, blessed, at best oblivious and at worst harmful to whoever is listening. Okay? Uh, to help us along the way as we think about how we can learn from failure, I wanted to recruit one of Jesus' disciples. Can anyone guess which one? Judas was one guess. Peter was another guess. I'm going to go with Peter. Uh, why would I pick Peter? Well, you know, how did he fail? Let me count the ways. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to fail, shame him. That, it would be, that is not the em empathetic response. But I have shared, you know, I've shared before about how Peter's not my favorite disciple. He, he just puts his foot in his mouth all the time. He, he doesn't think before he speaks. He doesn't think before he acts. He says things he doesn't even understand. I mean, sometimes he gets things right. Like, like he, he professed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and then a moment later he proves that he didn't, still didn't quite get it. Right? And you know, he didn't quite understand the nature of Jesus' deliverance, and so Jesus rebuked him and said, literally a few verses later, get behind me, Satan, which is Shows, you know, didn't quite get it. <laughs> Some of my discomfort with Peter is because um, his personality is so different from mine. I'm super cautious. I overthink everything I say and do because I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to fail. But sometimes that leads to not acting, to not saying or doing what I ought to, which is also a failure. We don't just fail by doing something wrong or by saying something bad, but also by not doing the right thing, by not saying the right thing. The confession we prayed earlier today in the service which Christians around the world prayed asks forgiveness for the things we have done and the things we have left undone. More often than not, for me, that second bucket is larger. Maybe you're more like Peter, or maybe you're more like me. Regardless, we have all failed plenty of times, both by what we have done and by what we have left undone. But I propose that our failures give us opportunities and invitations to learn and grow in attitude and in action. They give us opportunities to learn and grow in attitude and action. And then in sharing our failures and being vulnerable about our failures, we share those opportunities to learn and grow with others. So let's talk about attitude first. Our failures give us opportunities to grow in the attitudes of humility and graciousness, right? Humility and graciousness. 
Uh, inventor Thomas Edison is alleged to have said something like this, I have not failed, I've just found 10,000 ways uh, that won't work, right? Which is an admirable attitude to have when you, you're thinking about perseverance and grit, but it takes on a different light when we fail in ways that leave deeper wounds or that hurt people, whether relationally, emotionally, or even physically. Atul Gawande is a surgeon and a professor at Harvard who wrote about what he called the education of a knife. The education of a knife, right? He's a surgeon. And this is how the education of a knife goes. The only way for a surgeon to learn, as is true of all of us, the only way to learn is to practice. When you practice, you make mistakes. When surgeons make mistakes, people get hurt. So the only way for surgeons to learn is to hurt people. This should create a tremendous humility where the surgeon is beholden to the patient. This is what he writes. In surgery, as in everything else, anything else, skill, judgment, and confidence are learned through experience haltingly and humiliatingly. Like the tennis player and the oboist and the guy who fixes hard drives, we need practice to get good at what we do. There is one difference in medicine, though. It is people we practice upon. You see what I mean? It's one thing for an inventor to say they've never failed, but they found 10,000 ways that won't work. It's a whole other thing for a surgeon to say that. The stakes are different. But if you think about it, we, we all practice on other people. Right? We're all learning how to live. We all make mistakes and we hurt people in the course of that learning. Sometimes nicks and grazes, sometimes deep cuts. When I was in college, I dated someone for three years, and we broke up three times during the course of our relationship because it was my first relationship, and I didn't know what I was doing. Now, it was nowhere near all bad. Uh, you know, we had a lot of fun together. We, we, we really loved each other, but I was also young and immature and selfish. I didn't know how to navigate conflict. I didn't know how to be healthy in a relationship or in a healthy relationship. Each time we broke up, it was because I had had a swing in emotion. I was up and down, I was into her and then not into her, and those swings dictated the course of our relationship until she, thankfully, had enough of it. Her friends thought of me as an irresponsible, emotionally dangerous heartbreaker who was just all bad news. And although I don't think that's who I was uh, for the majority of our relationship, and, and I would like to think there was a lot of good in our relationship, I absolutely, absolutely failed to be careful with her heart not least because I didn't know any better. But that doesn't absolve me, does it? I didn't mean to hurt her, but that doesn't mean I didn't hurt her. I learned a lot, but that doesn't mean I didn't fail. I became a better person as a result of it, a more aware, more emotionally mature, more caring person as a result of that relationship, but was it worth her pain? We practice life on one another and we don't always get it right. And so that should make us humble about and careful with our failures, especially our personal and interpersonal ones. We are beholden to one another. And as author C.S. Lewis said, you have never met a mere mortal. Every person we interact with is one made in the image of God. You know, Peter was so sure, right? He would absolutely never deny Jesus. 
Matthew 26. If everyone else stumbles because of you, I'll never stumble. Even if I must die alongside you, I won't deny you. But in the very same chapter, I think, I think they, they structured this intentionally, that they made Matthew chapter 26 really long, so they would still be in the same chapter. <laughs> Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant woman came up to him and said, You are also with Jesus the Galilean. And he denied it in front of them, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. He went over to the gate, and another woman saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. With a solemn pledge, he denied it, saying, I don't know the man. Short time later, those standing there came and said to Peter, You must be one of them. The way you talk gives you away. And then he cursed and swore, and this is not just cuss words. This is like making a vow on his life. I don't know the man. At that very moment, the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered Jesus' words. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and cried uncontrollably. Our failures show us we are not infallible that our unequivocal, cocksure statements may, just may, prove false. I, in my relationship, I've been so sure, I've, but I've been so sure both of my desire to be with my ex and also so sure in my desire to break up with her. So sure at every point. And sometimes that swing happened over the course of a couple of weeks, sometimes over a couple of months. And so one of the things I learned about from, from that relationship was that my emotions, while important indicators, were not viable decision makers for my life. I learned the limits of the reliability of my emotions. But I also learned humility. We started dating when I was 19 years old. And as I said, that was my first relationship. And up until that point, I'd been in a handful of situations where my interest was unrequited. And especially in those moments when I had been let down harshly or unkindly, I promised, I swore that I would never hurt someone the way I had been hurt. Never. Only I did in my very first relationship. It was such a humbling experience and I wish, I wish I could have learned that without hurting her. Humility leads us to care for and be more careful with others. And in that humility we are also invited to show grace, to have an attitude of graciousness. See, if we know the harm we cause by our failures, however well-intentioned we were, we will extend the same grace and graciousness to others. And it's rooted in the grace we are shown in Christ. Right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Peter we see in the gospel account seems like a completely different person from the one we see in Acts and in the epistles. What happened? I mean, sure, the Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. But Peter experienced the grace and forgiveness of the one he had hurt, the one he had betrayed, the one he had failed. In John 21, the resurrected Christ appears to his disciples and they share a meal together. And it says, when they finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times, 
Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, one time for each denial. And I wonder if Peter was sad because Jesus was repeating the question or because he knew that Jesus was asking him one time for each denial. Jesus gently, graciously tells Peter that his failures do not define him, that his denials do not disqualify him. And in that grace, Peter is transformed from a denier in the last days of Jesus' life on earth to a proclaimer of the gospel in the opening chapters of Acts to one who counsels in 1 Peter 3, always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. And I wonder, as he was writing these words, if he was placing himself back in that courtyard where he was unable to do that. He had been unable to do that. And then he says, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Can you imagine young, brash, ready-fire-aim Peter doing anything with gentleness and reverence? Something happened that changed him. Peter's failures taught him humility and grace because he discovered his limits and received grace for his mistakes. Your failures are an opportunity to learn and grow in humility and grace. They are necessary steps in our faith journey as we cultivate em empathy and learn how to love. I hope, I hope we are and are becoming ever more a community that models that same humility and grace. Yes, we are called, absolutely, we are called to the work of justice, we are called to the work of prophetic witness, of seeking to see the kingdom of God here on earth, of calling out wrong and sin where we see it. But in a world of strident voices where we are pitted against them and we are right and they are wrong, let us pursue the kingdom calling with humility and grace as well for ourselves and for others. But our failures should not just lead us to better attitudes. It should lead us to better actions as well. So here are a few active responses to our failures, whether we fail God, others, or ourselves. Acknowledge, apologize, amend, and account. First, we acknowledge our failures. As I said earlier, this is vital. It's vital in order to be healed and to offer healing to others. If we don't think we've hurt someone, we, don't, we won't know the pain they're carrying the ways we've contributed to it, and how we might repair the breach. Acknowledgement may be as simple as noting it to yourself, writing it in your journal, sharing it in prayer with God, or it may be admitting it to the person you failed, the person you hurt. It depends on the situation. It depends on the impact of that failure. Acknowledgement of failure is to dwell in reality and to allow for the possibility that we might become more integrated and more vulnerable with less pretense and less obliviousness. Acknowledgement of failure tells me that you're at least making the effort to move towards self-awareness and to learn from your mistakes. A couple years ago, a friend who was interviewing at a church uh, asked me what questions I thought uh, they should ask the leaders who were interviewing her, in, in, interviewing her. And I said, well, the question that I would have is, when was the last time you were wrong and admitted it? Because if they can't name a moment, get out of there. Peter's tears tell us that he knew he had failed. He felt remorse at his failure. He was struck to the heart. And that was the first step to the redemption of his failure. The first step. Not the only step. 
Second step, where applicable, we apologize. We apologize. Sometimes our failures don't hurt anyone beyond ourselves. Thank the Lord for that. But they affect people more often than not, and they affect our relationship with God as a result. Confession, which we do here every week as part of our service, confession is apologizing to God. But it's just as important to apologize to those affected by our failures. Apologizing to those we've heard is also acknowledging and taking ownership of the impact of our words or actions, regardless of the intent. And in case you needed a very helpful guide on how to apologize, this is what fellow DC pastor Duke Kwan tweeted the other week, how to apologize. Express sorrow, I'm sorry. Own your guilt, I was wrong. Name the specific wrongs, I did X. Name the impact, I hurt you. No ifs. I'm sorry if you, or I'm sorry that you. Don't blame shift or defend, but you, you did this, so. No passive voice. I'm sorry you were offended. Make amends. What can I do? To make amends is, is different from the third action step. The third action step is that we amend our ways. Okay, making amends is is to seek to restore those we have hurt as much as we can to a pre-harm state, to repair whatever damage we can. Amending our ways, which is the third step, is to resolve to do something differently. In church talk, this is repentance. Not just saying sorry, but turning from the path that we were on and choosing a different one. It might just be a tweak. It might be a 180. But we probably shouldn't just do things exactly the same way. Sometimes our failures are the only things that will spur us to positive action, to positive change, because of the pain that we feel. Fourth, we pursue accountability. Uh, this is a bit of a shoehorn, but I was, I was trying to make them all A's. <laughs> <laughs> the idea, though, is we don't do this on our own. And whether it's your small group or a spiritual director or a counselor or therapist, we have folks around us. We need folks around us who will help us process our failures and then grow from them, who will counsel us when we have a decision to make or advise us when we don't know how to proceed or challenge us when we've said or done something harmful. Make sure there is at least one person in your life other than your significant other, if you have one, who can ask you anything and who knows everything. And I say other than your significant other because that's not a weight for them to bear on their own. A final thought on failure, and I said this in, in a way before, but it's worth repeating. You are not defined by your failures. There's somebody, there's somebody here who, that, that's all you need to know. Out of all the... The practical steps and the frameworks and the paradigms, the only thing that you need to know that the Spirit needs to impress upon your spirit today is that you are not defined by your failures. Kara Powell is the executive director of the Fuller Youth Institute, and, and she says to youth and children's pastors, she says, every kid in our ministry will make unwise life choices. Every kid in our families will make unwise life choices. They're going to make choices that are challenging. Teach them that Jesus is bigger than their mistakes. Let me tell you, that's not confined to kids. Adults make plenty of unwise life choices. Adults make choices that are challenging. Adults get things wrong. We need to know, you need to know, that Jesus is bigger than your mistakes. 
J.R. Briggs writes that it is the gospel that breaks the failure-rejection-shame cycle. It breaks in after the failure as we yield to the power of the gospel. Let's flip to the next one, too. As we yield to the power of the gospel, the good news, we are not our failures. Our sins are forgiven. We are accepted in spite of our wrongdoing. We are given honor as adopted children of God, no matter what we have done and no matter what has been done to us. Now, saying that, saying that is not to let you off the hook for the learning and the growing, the humility and the grace, the attitudes and the actions in response to our failures. To say that Jesus is bigger than our failures is not to say that our failures don't matter. Instead, it is to say and to lay, it is to lay the foundations for lives of integrity and faith and maturity. It's to remind us that we live in an unshakable kingdom, that our reality is God-infused, that God is nearer to us than the air that we breathe, and God is always working to bring good out of all things and inviting us to participate in that work. Our sins are forgiven, our failures are, are covered, and in light of that grace, in light of that grace, let us then live lives that are worthy of the calling of the kingdom, pursuing wholeness, and shalom and justice and righteousness, truth and love, acknowledging and admitting and amending and accounting for our own failures while not letting them define us. In Psalm 40, verse 12, the psalmist acknowledges that it is their wrongdoing that has caught up with them, that their failures are innumerable. But you know what surrounds the psalmist's wrongdoing? God. Verse 11. So now you, Lord, don't hold back any of your compassion from me. Let your love and faithfulness always protect me. And then he talks about, and then the psalmist talks about their, their wrongdoing. Verse 13, immediately after, favor me, Lord, and deliver me. Lord, come quickly and help me. The psalmist's wrongdoing is sandwiched, encompassed, surrounded, kept within God. It is only through the transformative power of God and the gospel that failure can be turned, has any hope of being turned to growth and glory. And so let's not forget the vital importance of submitting every aspect of our lives, the whole story, including our failures to the Lord. And to make it practical, let me suggest as a spiritual practice this week, spending some time in silence, in scripture, and in prayer. In silence and scripture and in prayer so that that transformative power of God might be applied and, and unleashed in your life. If you don't do it at all right now, start with five minutes of each every day. Silence, scripture, and prayer. If you don't know where to start in scripture, Psalm 40 is what we've been going through. Start there. If you're a pro, shoot for longer. See what God reveals. Listen for how God speaks. Watch for how God will move. I think you'll be astounded. Would you pray with me? There's a prayer that was shared with the author Henry Nouwen, and I'm going to pray it, and you may not appreciate me for praying it. You may not agree with this prayer because you may not like it. It goes like this. May all of your expectations be frustrated. May all of your plans be thwarted. May all of your desires be withered into nothingness that you may experience the powerlessness and poverty of a child. 
and can sing and dance in the love of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, in whatever ways you need to meet with us today, whether we need, you need to open our eyes to our failures that, that just kind of been oblivious, we've just kind of been going through, uh, going through the motions, or whether we, we feel defined by our failures. We feel like we can't get away from them. Uh, they're sh- hanging over us and they're tying us down. And we need to experience your, your freeing power, your liberating power. God, meet us in our pain, meet us in, in the midst of our failures and, tra- and, and transform us, God, so that, so that we also might, well, we might know freedom and then become agents of transformation and liberation ourselves. But would you meet with us graciously, God? Jesus, as you, as you, as you met with Peter on that beach, and you said, do you love me? And you asked him three times. And God, maybe, maybe each time that you ask us if we love you, it's one for each failure. And we feel like you're asking us a lot. But your spirit covers us. Your grace is enough and sufficient for us. So we ask for your spirit to be at work in us. Whatever step along the journey we're at, We pray these things in the all-encompassing embrace of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.